gives us rest. And so uh, as we come, I pray that you would um, draw your attentions, attention to the word of Isaiah, Isaiah 61, and I would ask uh, Paula Lynch to come and read that for us. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Good morning. morning. Our God lives. Our God is powerful. Our God is present. By the living, by his living power and presence, he binds up the brokenhearted. He proclaims liberty to the captives. He opens prisons for those who are bound. He comforts those who mourn, and he replaces mourning with gladness. He provides praise for those who are faint in spirit. We gather here in this place as evidence of that fact. And so it is that we worship. And so here, as the prophet Isaiah continues to gather us, to turn our eyes, to behold his glory, that we may worship. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. At this point, I'm going to ask the chaplains to come forward, Rob and Lutzka, with their little ones, and along with their tiniest one, Alex along with mom and dad, Carl and Becky Chaplin, along with the elders, if you wouldn't mind coming forward, those who are in the room, and standing together around them. Often, as Albert hinted and as I have hinted, we find ourselves gathering on a Sunday morning feeling absolutely helpless and absolutely hopeless. And we wonder, can I make it through the day? Can I make it through the week? Baptism is not today about little Alex. It is not about Robin Lusco. Baptism is about the Lord's answer to that cry of your heart. Because he who called is faithful and he will do it. And baptism reminds us of that fact. 
So with that word, I'm going to ask Carl to lead us. Adding to what uh, Dan just said, God made a covenant promise with his people in the Old Testament. It began with Adam and Eve. It continued through Noah and through Abraham on through the ages. It is God's promise. A covenant is an agreement sealed with a promise, God's promise. God said, I, you will be my people. You will be my people, not because of you, but because of me. Even in Acts, and Peter reminds the people, the Jews, that the promise, he said, is still in effect for them and their children. In Acts 16.31, we read, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Baptism is a sign to point us to Christ, to point us to God. Baptism is not a sign of belief. Many people have been baptized who were not true believers. So we don't baptize to say, well, okay, you're, you're in. No, it's a sign to say, pointing to the promise that God has made, that if you believe, I've called you to believe, if you believe. So we baptized Alex, not because he is a believer, obviously not, but because he's part of the covenant promise through his family, through his parents and even his grandparents and his great-grandparents who were believers. It's a covenant promise that I will bless you as you believe. So one day, Alex will have to say, does he believe? For the parents, I would say there's two main responsibilities for parents, not only for Rob and Luska, but any parent here. The first is that you promise to depend on God's grace by praying for your children. That is the greatest responsibility you have, is to pray for your children. Pray that they will believe. Pray that they will come to understand that they need a Savior. They need a deliverer. If we depend on our own ability, and we often do, every parent in here does, don't we? We depend on ourselves, but we will fail. So that's why we pray. We pray that they will see Christ, not us that they will come to understand. And second responsibility is to teach our children, to set an example before them. That is, to teach them about the Bible, to teach them stories of the Bible. Scott will like this, as Scott's here. To teach them songs about Scripture, about God. To teach them so they will come to understand the great truths of God's love, the great truths of the glory of God, the great truths of Scripture. And so we need to talk about them. We do that not only in church, but out of church. And as we treat our spouse, as we treat our friends, as we talk about the church and support the church. So I have uh, three questions for Rob and Luska, and then Dan will have a question for the congregation. Rob and Luska, ask, answer accordingly, please. Do you acknowledge your child's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? We do. Do you claim God's covenant promise in his behalf? And do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for his salvation as you do your own? We do. Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before him a godly example that you will pray with and for him, that you will teach him the doctrines of our holy religion and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We do. And then I have another question that I learned from a pastor that his father, his pastor, asked every parent who were bringing a second or third or et cetera uh, child to be baptized. And this is the question. Have you sought to be faithful to these promises that you have made with your current two children? The Lord's blessing we have. Easy to make promises. Hard to fulfill them, but thank you. All right, and Dan has a question for the congregation. Some of you are here perhaps for the first time or, or have forgotten. Why do we call the elders forward? Because the elders stand as representative of the fact that the thing we're talking about is huge. It's a challenge. And it's not just Rob and Luska. 
But this is something that we take on as a congregation. As a congregation, we walk together reminding one another and helping one another to remember that our God is faithful. Our hope is in Him and in His promises. And so I ask the congregation, if you are a member of the congregation, please hear and respond accordingly. Do you, as a congregation, undertake the responsibility of assisting these parents in the Christian nurture of this child? If so, please indicate by saying, I do. I do. So, Alex Robert Chaplin, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. May God's blessings be upon you forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Lord. We are entrusted with great gifts, not the least of which is our children. And you know how miserably we fail as parents. So we plead for your grace to fall upon Alex, as we do for each child in here, that he, by your choosing, would come to understand early, so early, his own need for Christ, his own sins. We pray for Rob and Luska and even Andrew and James. As a family, may they grow to understand your grace, your love, all that you are. We pray, Lord, Father, for you are the one we worship. Amen. Rob and Luska, as a, uh, as a token of our commitment to join you all in this covenant endeavor, uh, Paul is here to introduce you. That is a gift that, of course, many of us have seen, and so when you use it, you remember we're in this together. Let me pray for us as a congregation. Father, we do thank you that you have made a promise and that you are faithful to keep it. We thank you, Father, for the the gift of baptism by which we are reminded that you are faithful to the promises that you have made. And so, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us to walk in the joy and in the hope and in the confidence of that together with the chaplains as your people here at Chattanooga Valley Presbyterian. And for we pray it in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let us stand and celebrate together with the chaplains using hymn number 30. Our God, our help in ages past.
come before him in prayer. Father, we come into this room at this time keenly aware of our frailty, of our foolishness, of our weakness, of our helplessness, of our vulnerability. Some of us do not need the reminder, but all of us have been reminded of that fact in the celebration of baptism, that our hope Our hope is in you alone, our God, our help in ages past, who through your Son, Jesus Christ, displayed with power and glory that you are doggedly committed to make good on the promise that you have made. And so we thank you for this opportunity by which we gather together as your people to be reminded of that great promise to recount one to another the mighty works of your great love and to celebrate it together. Father, we pray that by the powerful working of your Spirit, you would pierce through the complacency and the distractions that swarm in our hearts, in our minds, and in our circumstances. That in the midst of it, we would be still. We would know that you are God. We would hear that still, small voice saying, I live, I act, and I will make good on the promises I have made. And so, Father, to that end, we pray that you would give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it, minds to apprehend it, hearts to rest and rejoice in it. For this is how your Son taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. May be seated. As we continue in our worship together, if you could turn to page 829. And uh, as you're turning there, I just, uh, I forgot to introduce myself at the beginning. My name is Albert Levingood. Uh, I'm an elder here. And uh, Dan Gilchrist is our pastor that just prayed. And um, uh, pastor chaplain. Uh, is a member of the, our, our uh, presbytery here and uh, had the privilege of, of baptizing uh, one of his grandchildren, uh, Lutzka and Rob, are, are members here. So apologize for not uh, announcing that up front. And uh, we also are excited to have uh, Dr. Bill Tate uh, preaching for us uh, this summer. Whoa, just today. Sorry, Bill. <laughs> Uh, I was thinking this summer, during the summer, we, we have um, uh, different uh, elders and uh, teachers uh, come and bring us God's word, and um, Bill graciously agreed to do it uh, this morning. So um, hopefully you're at, it, at page 829, and uh, we're going to read responsively together a portion of Psalm 119. Um, and I've asked this question before. Um, but I'll ask you again, why, why is it that we come to worship every Sunday? I'll confess, um, you know, and, and I'll say that uh, this morning, uh, Grace and Austin uh, gave their testimony, um, and they gave me courage uh, to, to share with you this morning that I confess when I woke up, I was worried, and I can't say what I was worried about because it just was a general sense of anxiety, of, of not feeling um, the Lord's uh, presence or his peace in, in my life and just thinking about different things. And even though I had, worried, I had uh, remembered earlier in the week, uh, I had forgotten that I was leading this morning. <laughs> and I thought, oh, great, here I am waking up in anxiety and I'm supposed to go into the house of the Lord, and 
lead people uh, in worship. And so I had looked at uh, the order of worship earlier in the week, but I looked at it again, and I, I sat down and I read uh, por- the portion from Psalm 119, and the direction to delight in God's word, uh, to know that his promises give me life, uh, all of a sudden quieted uh, that anxiety and reminded me that as we come into worship, we come before the throne of grace. We come before the one uh, who knows our past and our present and our future. Uh, And he knows everything that we're dealing with. He knows um, everything uh, that we need. And so I pray that as we read responsibly this morning, uh, that portions of this or all of this uh, would serve to comfort you, uh, to focus your eyes on him, and to cause your hearts to cry out rejoicing. I will read uh, the normal print if you would respond, uh, reading the bold, and we're starting in that lower right-hand corner there, Psalm 119, 33 through 56, and we'll turn the page and, and complete it. Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees. Then I will keep them to the end. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. May your unfailing love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Do not snatch the word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. For I delight in your commands because I love them. Remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. The arrogant mock me without restraint, but I do not turn from your law. Indignation grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. In the night, I remember your name, O Lord, and I will keep your law. One of the things that stuck out to me this morning, uh, it happens to be verse 119.50. I believe believe you all read it. Uh, No, I read it. Uh, This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promises give me life. Uh, We have life because of the word of God made flesh in Jesus Christ. Let us stand and uh, give voice to that testimony singing wonderful, merciful Savior uh, found printed on the backside of the bulletin. Wonderful, merciful Savior
Please be seated. Let me first apologize for talking around a cough drop. And then let me ask you to turn to Philemon. It's that little epistle right before the longer epistle to the Hebrews, towards the end of the New Testament. I'll read a good chunk of Philemon. Um, And then we'll move away from it for a while, but it will be the context for how we make sense of some of the other things that I have to say. So, in Philemon, I want to read beginning of verse 4 and through verse 20. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Jesus Christ. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own free will. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever." No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in giving us your word. We pray this morning that what is said here would be of benefit, that it would help us to understand what's true and what's right and it would help us to be clear in our thinking about uh, how to live out our love for you as we love our neighbors. We ask for your guidance in this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The sermon series this summer has been looking at the ways God is making of us a new kind of people. 
Speaking within that theme, David Marr reminded us last week that one of the ways God is at work making us different is by calling us to think differently about those around us. I want to follow up on that idea by trying to think through some of the ways we name each other. Naming is powerful. The names we choose to give one another matter. And it's, it's uh, lovely um, and, and delightful to me that we had a baptism today because um, baptisms are, in one respect, about naming, about the names that we choose, about the continuities that we establish in giving names. Um, and uh, uh, I'll mention in just a minute uh, the name of one of my children. And uh, I think all parents in the room will remember uh, the efforts that you put into choosing good names. So uh, there's a serendipity there. <clears throat> so naming is powerful. The names we choose to give one another matter. Let me mention a few examples. <clears throat> Example one, when I introduce myself to people as an English teacher, about half the time the reaction is, oh, I'll have to watch what I say around you. By naming myself as an English teacher, I create the expectation that I'm a card-carrying member of the grammar police. <laughs> Example two, my daughter Hannah has known for as long as she can remember that her name comes from a Hebrew word that means grace and that Patty and I gave her that name as an expression of our thankfulness for God's grace in our lives. When Hannah turned 18, she decided to get a tattoo and she chose the words sola gratia, the Latin words which mean, by grace alone, as her tattoo. I didn't encourage the tattoo. <laughs> but the choice of phrase was hard to argue with. My point is that Hannah recognizes in the tattoo an association with the meaning of her name. Example three. When I was in graduate school, I attended a conference which one of my professors was also attending. At one point, I approached her to say hello, and she introduced me to a friend of hers who is a famous scholar in our specialty area. This friend asked about me, is he a student or a colleague? And my professor answered, oh, a colleague. Her choice announced that she regarded me as a professional. That was hugely important to me. She named me in advance of my accomplishment, indicating her confident expectation that I would grow into the name she had given me. Example four, in my academic writing, I have occasionally drawn on the writing of a German philosopher named Martin Heidegger. Sometimes people who know something about him ask, how can you use Heidegger? Wasn't he a Nazi sympathizer? The assumption behind this question is that if a person isn't morally perfect, then he doesn't have anything to say that we can learn from. We attach a label, and in doing so, we dismiss the person. These examples have in common the importance they demonstrate in the way we assign names to ourselves, and especially to each other. What labels do we use for each other, and how do they shape us? We say, maybe just in our minds, he's a feminist, or she's a racist, or yeah, but they're Republicans, or yeah, but they're Democrats. We say, he's not very athletic, or she's a great student, or you're so nice. And when we say these things, we identify roles which we expect him or her or them to live up to, good or bad. We name them. But here's the kicker. Once we give a name, the name sticks. This sermon started with a poem named The Fourth of July, which was published by a poet named Richard Wilbur during the American Bicentennial in 1976. In the time available to us, I want to describe what Wilbur does with that poem, then let his suggestions frame a brief look at two passages of scripture, which I hope will give us some direction about how we use names. And I just want to point out how hard this is for me. I'm going to give you a really short version of this poem. It's, it's a poem I could easily spend an hour and a half on, but I better not. So here's the short version. There isn't time for me to explain all the details of the poem, 
But I want to give you a sense of how the ideas of the poem unfold. The poem is arranged in five stanzas, each 11 lines long. The first stanza gives a little history. Here are the opening lines. Little, the Oxford lexicographer, allowed his three small daughters on this day to row from Folly Bridge to Godstow, where their oarsman, Mr. Dodgson, gave them tea beneath a rick of hay. The little mentioned in the first line was an Oxford professor, famous for preparing a Greek dictionary that is still in use. He is perhaps more famous as the father of Alice, one of the three daughters who went boating with Little's colleague, Mr. Dodgson, better known as Lewis Carroll. Alice Little was the original for Carroll's Alice, and this particular outing on the Thames was the occasion when Carroll began telling the girls the story that eventually turned into Alice in Wonderland. As Wilbur points out, the boating trip took place on this day, the 4th of July in 1862. American readers who come to the poem and see its title are likely to assume that we know immediately what the 4th of July means. It is Independence Day. Wilbur wants us to remember that the meaning of the day depends on where we are. As the poet W.H. Auden noticed, Alice's boating trip on the Thames made July 4th as memorable a day in the history of English literature as it is in American history. But this tells us that the meaning of the name 4th of July differs from person to person and from culture to culture. The second stanza of Wilbur's poem brings the poem to an American context. He says, off to the west in Memphis, Grant closed a smoky door on aides and guards and chewed through scheme on scheme for toppling Vicksburg like a house of cards. During the same month in which Carroll began his story, Ulysses S. Grant assumed command of the, of the Army of the Tennessee and the Army of the Mississippi. His main assignment was to gain control of the Mississippi River for the Union, and the key to controlling the river was controlling Vicksburg. The stanza mentions that it took a year before Union forces under Grant's command defeated Vicksburg on July 4th, 1863. What do you think the 4th of July meant for the citizens of Vicksburg after 1863? According to a note at history.com, Vicksburg would not celebrate the holiday for 81 years. They finally accepted the holiday again near the end of World War II. Wilbur opens his poem with these two stories in order to make us realize that names might not mean to everyone what they mean to us. In the next two stanzas, he mentions two more stories which shift the focus a little. The third stanza mentions an episode from Through the Looking Glass, Lewis Carroll's sequel to Alice in Wonderland. In this particular episode, Alice enters a wood where things have no names. She is surprised to find that she can't even remember her own name. While she is in this wood, she meets a fawn, and the two of them keep each other company until they get through the wood. Here's a bit of the story from Through the Looking Glass. So, they walked on together through the wood, Alice with her arms clasped lovingly round the soft neck of the fawn, till they came into another open field, and here the fawn gave a sudden bound into the air and shook itself free from Alice's arm. I'm a fawn, it cried out in a voice of delight. And dear me, you're a human child. A sudden look of alarm came into its beautiful brown eyes, and in another, another moment it had darted away at full speed. Alice stood looking after it, almost ready to cry with vexation at having lost her dear little fellow traveler so suddenly. When he reminds us of this episode, Wilbur wants us to imagine what it would be like if we didn't use labels. If only the fawn had not known to label Alice human, that is, to identify Alice as a member of a species that hunts deer. Then Alice and the fawn might have continued as friends. But memory of the name 
made the fawn fear Alice in spite of their friendly companionship. The episode implies that in a sense, there would be an advantage in getting rid of labels. But that's not really a solution, as Wilbur reminds us with his next example. In his fourth stanza, he remembers what happened to Carl Linnaeus, the Swedish botanist who came up with the basics of the system of naming which scientists still use to identify new species. One of the guiding principles of Linnaeus' thought was his belief that, quote, if you do not know the names of things, you lose the knowledge of them, end quote. We have to have names in order to have knowledge. So as Wilbur puts it, no kindly swoon befell Linnaeus when the bald unknown encroached upon his memory cell by cell, and he whose love of all things made had brought bird, beast, fish, plant, and stone into the branchy reaches of his thought, lost bitterly to mind their name's sweet Latin and his own as well. In a note about the poem, Wilbur explains that owing to a stroke, Linnaeus lost in his latter years the knowledge even of his own name. Although Alice's loss of her friendship with the fawn might make us wish we didn't need names, Linnaeus's loss of, the, of his memory shows us how much we really do need them. Up to this point, the poem has helped us to notice that names don't mean the same thing to everyone, so that citizens of England, or for a time Vicksburg, might not think of the 4th of July the same way we do. The poem has also allowed us to see that names have disadvantages, but that we need them anyway. What should we do with this information? In the closing lines of the poem, Wilbur suggests an answer. He does this by praising three ways we human beings know things. First, he says, praise to knowledge of the kind that brings only hunch for proof. Sometimes we give names more or less intuitively, and these work fine. Secondly, Wilbur praises the kind of knowing scientists do, mentioning as an example Copernicus, who, when his vision of reality leaped into the solar disk and set the earth to wheeling, waited then to see what slate or quadrant might exact, not hesitant to risk his dream stuff in the fitting rooms of fact. The point of these lovely lines is that when Copernicus came up with a new way to name the solar system, asking his contemporaries whether it didn't make more sense of the facts to think of the sun as the center of the solar system instead of thinking of the earth as the center, it took some time for the new explanation of things to be recognized as better than the old explanation. Wilbur says that Copernicus was willing to risk his ideas in the fitting rooms of fact. If I am really optimistic when I'm shopping for a new pair of pants, I might try on a size that would have fit me comfortably 30 years ago. But when I put these things on in the fitting room, the facts correct my optimism. In a sense, I have to name myself differently now. The third kind of knowing which Wilbur praises is the knowing we grow into. He says, honor to these states which come to see that black men too are men. I want you to notice that come is present tense. It's, it's an ongoing thing as Wilbur notices it. Um, come to see, the United States, come to see that black men too are men so that we are finally beginning after troubled sleep, debates, great bloodshed, and a century's delay to mean what once we said upon this day. Wilbur has in mind here the successes of the civil rights movement in the late 60s up until 1976 when he wrote the poem. His phrase, dream stuff, might be intended to make us think of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, which calls on the United States to live up to the implied promises of freedom 
for everyone, for freedom for everyone expressed in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. At the end of all his talk about naming, Wilbur wants us to recognize that sometimes the names we give things, though true when we give them, may become more fully true as we grow into them. I'm hoping that Wilbur's meditation on naming in this poem will help us notice some ideas about naming in scripture that we tend to ignore. Let me start with the first description of human naming we have from Genesis 2, 18 through 20. Here's the passage. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. A lot is going on here, but let me notice just three things. To begin with, although God makes the living creatures, Adam participates in creation by means of naming. God calls Adam to creatively respond to the world in which God has placed him. Many interpreters have taken this command as the most basic reason for human creative practice. Wilbur, for example, in another poem, recognizes it is his calling, quote, joyfully to see how fair the fiats of the collar are, end quote. In other words, to name creation in his poetry. Second, God grants Adam a very broad freedom in choosing what to name the animals. Although the passage doesn't comment on this freedom, the freedom seems to include room for an ongoing practice of naming. At least it seems plausible to me along with many Christian thinkers through the centuries, to think that, for example, the naming of newly discovered species in modern times legitimately responds to and fulfills the command to Adam. Linnaeus regarded his system of naming as a way of following in Adam's footsteps. With regard to the freedom to give new names, it also seems possible that the names for things might legitimately change as cultures change and as human understanding of one thing or another improves. This is important. Names and the things to which they refer might legitimately change, and more than one name might be correct for something. Third, God's calling includes an expectation that Adam will make sense of the world as an orderly whole. We see this in the way the command is framed in the text. The command is introduced by God's observation that it is not good that the man should be alone. And through the process of naming, Adam realizes that he is alone, indicating pretty clearly that in his observation of the creatures as he thought about names for them, he also noticed that livestock and birds and beasts of the field had mates. And he realized that he himself needed a counterpart. So he made sense of all of it as a system, and it wasn't just about the naming. So he saw in creation an orderly system. Notice God could have just said, hey, Adam, by the way, you're alone. Instead, he put Adam in a situation which would let him recognize that truth for himself. Let me emphasize two ideas that seem to be implied by the freedom God gives to Adam in naming. First, again, more than one name might be appropriate for a person or a thing, which means we might even have a choice about which name to use. Adam might have called, have first called the giraffe, the thing with long legs and big spots. Later, he might have decided to call it the thing with a long neck to reach leaves. Why not? Second, we might realize in some circumstances that we ought to prefer a new name over an old one. Maybe the second description of the giraffe was more useful. Though notice, both names are truly descriptive of the giraffe. 
This brings us to Paul's epistle to Philemon, which gives us some crucial direction concerning the power of the labels we use, especially for one another. The basic story told by the epistle has generally been understood to be something like this. Onesimus, a slave of Philemon's household, ran away from servitude, perhaps having stolen something from Philemon. Sometime later, Onesimus encountered Paul and became a Christian. Recognizing that Onesimus owed a debt to Philemon, according to the norms of first century Gentile culture, Paul sent the slave back to his master. But when he did so, Paul recommended to Philemon two adjustments in the way he referred to or named or described Onesimus. In verse 11, he suggests the designation useful. It's a Greek word, euchreston, as a replacement for the designation useless, which is the Greek word achreston. So very close in the Greek. Uh, there's a little wordplay going on there. More broadly, in verse 15, Paul suggests that this perhaps is why Onesimus was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Paul does not demand that Philemon immediately free Onesimus. And notice the name slave for Onesimus is still technically true. Paul doesn't give specific details about how Philemon's attitude towards Onesimus should change. Instead, he provides an alternative name for Philemon to use. He wants Philemon to prefer the name brother as somehow more true for Onesimus. By providing new terms for the relationship, he puts in place a new way of thinking that will eventually bring about actual change in the relationship that is consistent with what Paul declares elsewhere. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3, 27 and 28. Let me interrupt myself there and just say, all of those labels, in some sense, continue to be true. There is Jew, there is Greek, there is male, there is female. Those truths don't disappear. What Paul is saying in Galatians 3 is that there's a higher truth, there's a more important truth for us to focus on, and that's our unity in Christ. To put the point directly, Paul gives a new name then leaves it to the way language works with the guidance of the Holy Spirit to actualize what the new name intends. In his poem, Wilbur represents the promise and fulfillment of names in a very similar way. Let me approach my conclusion by suggesting two ways thinking about names should be useful to us. First, we need to recognize ourselves by the new names God has given us. In Genesis 17.5, God says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, which means exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, father of a multitude. A name change that is still being actualized. In Genesis 32.28, God says, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, a kind of insulting name, heel snatcher. But you shall be called instead Israel, one who wrestles with God. In Isaiah 62, 2, God tells his people, the nations shall see your righteousness, and you shall be called by a new name. According to Hosea 2.23, the Lord will say to not my people, you are my people. In John 15, 15, Jesus says to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, but I have called you friends. In Colossians 3, 11, and 12, Paul says here, and this echoes the Galatians passage that I've already read, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all 
and in all. Put on then, like clothing, by the way, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. The last part of this says, essentially, God has already called you holy. So, be holy. In all of these passages, God gives us something to try on that when we first try it in the fitting room, seems not to fit. But he expects that those to whom he gives new names will grow into them. You remember that I mentioned the professor who called me a colleague rather than a student while I was still in graduate school. In a sense, her use of that name for me was an act of faith that I would succeed professionally. How much more should we have faith that God will accomplish his good purposes as he makes us a new kind of people? Paul said to the Philippians, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. We have reason to speak confidently the truths which are not yet obvious to the world, but which God is even now bringing into reality. You are already dressed in righteousness, so be righteous. But there is another way we need to pay attention to names. We need to pay attention to how we use them. This is the particular lesson of Wilbur's poem and of Philemon. It sometimes happens that a person, perhaps one of my students or hypothetically one of my children, says to me something unkind about another person. Hoping to improve a relationship, I say, but that's not kind. The response to this very often is this. Maybe not, but it's true. You probably haven't ever heard that. Let me say this clearly. The fact that something is true all by itself is not enough reason to say it. We ought to love the truth, but we have a higher obligation to love our neighbors, to look for what is more true in them by God's mercies, and love covers a multitude of sins, according to 1 Peter 4.8. Speaking the truth in love includes not speaking the truth contrary to love. And it may mean confidently expecting a truth to emerge that isn't yet obvious. What difference would it make if you exchanged, just in your own heart, the secret name you use for your coworker or family member from loser or jerk to friend? or even possibly brother in Christ, or child of the covenant. Calvin, in his discussion of election, says that we should treat everyone we meet as potentially a fellow believer. It may be true that the person you work with is a jerk, but it's more true that he's the neighbor whom God has called you to love. It may be true that your child or your sibling is annoying, but it's more true that she's God's gift to you. Not use useless, useful. Not slave, brother. May God in his grace help us to grow into the truth that is most fitting. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...